Today on World Footprints, we'll visit one of the largest churches in the world, examine efforts to save cheetahs, and head off on a Caribbean pirate treasure hunt. The Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception may not be Washington, D.C.'s most iconic building, but it looms large in other ways. The largest Roman Catholic church in the United States. We're 77,500 square feet. We have approximately 74 oratories and chapels. Saving cheetahs in the wild has been the focus of Namibia's Cheetah Conservation Fund, and we'll look at the passionate work of its people to save this endangered cat. I think the most enriching part is working with an endangered species every single day. Philippe Cousteau Jr. and his wife Ashlyn share their love and continue the Cousteau legacy in the Travel Channel's Caribbean Pirate Treasure. The antiquities that are still underneath the sea, that's what we're interested in, and that's what we go try to find. Plus, we'll also visit two historic homes in our nation's capital, Tudor Place and Hurick House, on World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Later in the hour, we'll go behind the scenes at feeding time at Namibia's Cheetah Conservation Fund, where for more than three decades, staff has worked to save its endangered cat. Then, husband and wife explorers, Philippe and Ashlyn Cousteau, Build on the Cousteau family legacy with their new travel channel show, Caribbean Pirate Treasure, and share how they navigate their professional work and their marital relationship. Also, Washington, D.C. is filled with many well-known attractions drawing millions of visitors every year. By venturing off the beaten path, D.C.'s unique neighborhoods reveal historic homes with stories of their own connected to America's history. We'll visit two of them in the nation's capital, Tudor Place in Hurick House. But first, the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Consumption is the largest Roman Catholic church in North America and one of the ten largest churches in the world. Louise Dufresne of the Basilica takes us inside this beautiful building in Northeast Washington, D.C. to share its remarkable history. I'd like to welcome everyone to the National Shrine, the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, the largest Roman Catholic church in the United States. We're 77,500 square feet. We have approximately 74 oratories and chapels. Oratories are places of prayer and quiet and contemplation. Chapels all have an altar. Every single altar in the entire basilica is blessed, it's consecrated. So Mass can be celebrated at any altar you see in the entire shrine. We're here in the upper church, which was built 1954 to 59, but actually construction began in the 1920s. In 1920, the crypt church began being built directly underneath the the sanctuary up here in the upper church. The Crypt Church is where we have masses every single day, Monday through Friday, six six masses a day, Monday through Saturday, excuse me. Up here we have all the Sunday masses. We can seat four to six hundred people in the small church downstairs. We can seat about four to five thousand people up here. 
We have numerous um, high school graduations and the Catholic University as well. The walls of the basilica are covered with reliefs and mosaics at every turn. As we step into the upper church, one of the world's largest reliefs greets us, the universal call to holiness. Before we move to the front of the church, I'd like to turn your attention to the back of the church, to the wall relief above the three-arched wall. It's titled The Universal Call to Holiness from a Lumen Gentium document of Vatican II. It was carved as one piece of stone weighing approximately 27 tons in Pietrasanta, Italy. Pietrasanta means sainted stone in Italian. And it was carved in one piece, but it had to be cut up into approximately 16 sections in sizes that fit through our doorway and crated and shipped to the United States. Each section sits on a three-quarter inch stainless steel shelving, and it was all done in the 1990s. The dove represents the Holy Spirit leading all walks of life to itself, male and female and all ages represented in the relief as well. There's a small bust of Mother Teresa of Calcutta and a small bust of Pope John Paul II, now saint. On the left, Mother Teresa. On the right, in between the arches to the far sides. Flanking the main aisle of the church are chapels dedicated to the venerated saints of the Catholic Church from here and elsewhere. We have chapels on both sides of the main aisle. The miraculous metal chapel on one side, where the Blessed Mother appeared to Catherine Labore outside France. And she gave Catherine instruction on how to create the medal and the Blessed Mother, all the chapels of the Blessed Mother here. The Blessed Mother given instruction how to create the medal and stating that those who would wear it would receive special graces from her. Then we have Our Lady of the Rosary Chapel with 15 flames surrounding the Blessed Mother and Christ Child for the original 15 mysteries of the Rosary. But today we have 20 mysteries of the Rosary. So before we go downstairs, there's a new chapel from 2008, which was dedicated in 2008, the Italian chapel, Our Lady of Pompeii, and I will be showing you that chapel before we go downstairs. And so we will not change this chapel because it dates when the church was built. There were only 15 mysteries of the rosary for the Blessed Mother and the life of Christ that we pray. And so this dates when the church was built. Also up here we have a carving in the wall of Venerable Kateri Tekakwitha, the first Native American saint, but now she's a saint. So we have another statue downstairs that says Saint Kateri Tekakwitha. And the same thing with Mother Teresa, we have a statue that says not blessed, but Saint Teresa of Calcutta, Saint Mother Teresa. And so again, this dates when the church was built. It was only the 1950s when this upper church was built. As we continue touring the chapels of the upper church, we begin to appreciate how this basilica reflects diversity of the Americas as a melting pot for all races, as the chapel of Our Lady of Guadalupe shows. And the next chapel on your left is Our Lady of Guadalupe, where the Blessed Mother left an image of herself on the tilma or cloak of Juan Diego outside Mexico City. This is a popular chapel through the Spanish-speaking community. 
the pro-life movement, and expectant mothers because the Blessed Mother's image is one in which she's expecting the Christ child. Across from you on your right, we have the Seven Sorrows of Mary. In the center, the Pieta, a life-size statue. The Pieta meaning pity or compassion of the Blessed Mother holding the body of her son. And continuing on your right, another country represented, Lithuania. The Lithuanian chapel called Our Lady of Suluva, which means pine cone in Lithuanian. There are numerous pine cones in the blue mosaic arch that surround the statue of the Blessed Mother and Christ Child. So all the chapels are Our Lady of, they're all of Mary, as she's venerated in these countries all over the world. And then we have a very special chapel on your left, the Polish chapel, Our Lady of Czestochowa. This is very special because being of Polish heritage, the now saint, John Paul II, was here in 1979. And being of Polish heritage, he visited this chapel. He also visited before he was pope as cardinal. And so a very special place to us that the now saint was here at the basilica. And there's a small round mosaic as you move forward of the Pope, you can see on the wall, and now Saint, with the carving underneath of the date he was here in October of 1979. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We're exploring the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. As the saints of the past are venerated inside the Basilica, contemporary Catholic history intersects with the past as we reach the altars inside the upper church, as Louise Dufresne explains. The altar is called the Sarah Altar for the newest American saint, Unipedo Sarah of California, a Franciscan missionary who opened the first nine of 21 missions in California. This altar was carved specifically for Pope Francis, our current Pope, for an outdoor mass outside those doors to your right on the east portico. We celebrated the mass of canonization, which was historic, in that it was one of the first, if not the first, canonization of an American saint on American soil, not in Rome, but the Pope was here and celebrating mass with this altar, which was placed outside for him for that canonization mass. So it's called the Sarah Altar. And this is the altar we use every Sunday for masses up here. We no longer use the second altar, the Immaculate Conception Altar, which is solid stone, further to the front of the church with the large canopy of stone, and we will see that as we move to the front of the church. From the awe-inspiring domes, mosaic, and statues that define the church and much of the ornamentation, words can hardly express the grandeur and artistry on display inside the upper church. The Mother of Jesus Christ, you can see how she's dwarfed in comparison with this larger-than-life statue to her son behind her. She always leads us to her son, the Christ in Majesty mosaic, one of the largest mosaics of Christ in the world here in the Basilica. And if you can see her shadow, the shadow of this larger-than-life seven-foot, two-inch statue is under Christ's raised left arm 
under his robe, she stands on the rainbow. You might be able to make out her shadow um, standing on the rainbow. So you can see how much smaller, but she always leads us to the one God that we do worship and the mystery of the Trinity and Christ her son. Above is the blue dome, the triumph of the lamb dome from the book of Revelation. The lamb represents Christ opening the scroll with the seven seals and the 24 elders in long white robes surrounding, singing the praises of God in heaven. Continuing the book of Revelation, behind you, we have the apocalypse dome of the Blessed Mother, just giving birth to the Christ child, who in the upper left is taken to the safety of heaven by the angels, saved from the seven-headed dragon, which represents the devil, the seven heads for the seven deadly sins. At over 3,600 square feet, the Christ in Majesty mosaic is believed to be the largest mosaic of Jesus in the world. It has between three and 4,000 different colors with 300 shades of red and 200 shades of gold. And so here we have the Christ in Majesty, the first complete ornamentation of the Basilica. After the superstructure, it was the only color, the only complete piece of art when the church was officially dedicated in 1959. Everything you see all around you, all the mosaics, the altars, the sculptures, the statuary, has been added over the years, all the way up till today, as I keep saying, since 1920, we're still a work in progress. And so the Christ in Majesty was the very first completed project for the dedication in 1959. It is a Christ in majesty. It's a full-body Christ. It is not a pantocrator, which is from the mid-chest up. This is a full-body Christ. You can see seated on the rainbow throne of reconciliation. You can see his knees and three dominions standing in front of him, three dominions in the order of angels in heaven. There are four guardian angels in long white robes, two on the left and two on the right. At the far left, at the stained glass window, you can see the angel holding a small model of this basilica within its hands. You see the hallmark bell tower and the Trinity Dome. And so the five altars to the glorious mysteries of the rosary, old and new testament stories in mosaic, the poor and humble saints on top of all the marble pillars, all Jesuit saints in the area we just left of the joyful mysteries of the rosary. And now we'll move over to the sorrowful mysteries. Three seated popes have visited the basilica during its existence. As we wrap up our tour, Louise recounts Pope Benedict's visit and offers a preview of some of the dramatic changes to come in this ever-evolving church. And this is the German oratory, the statue of the Blessed Mother and Christ Child given to us by the German people. And when Pope Benedict was here on his birthday in April 2008, he had a kneeler placed here so he could pray quietly before he celebrated with the bishops of the United States downstairs in the crypt church, being of German heritage, and commemorating his visit, we have this plaque on the wall. So we've had three seated popes visit here. 
Pope, now St. John Paul II in 1979, Pope Benedict in 2008, and Pope Francis in 2015. And here we're coming up to a poster board on your left of Pope Francis, our current Pope, blessing this section of mosaic, which will be going up in the Trinity Dome. And the Trinity Dome, when it will be completed in December in mosaic, this is an artist's rendition and this section of mosaic, the Nicene Creed, I believe in one God, concluding in Amen, is this small two-inch section at the bottom of the poster. So it gives you an idea of the expanse of the dome that we're working in. And it has 36 stained glass windows in it that allow natural daylight to come through. It's the dome you can see on the outside of the basilica, decorated in white, gold, and blue. And it has those windows, all stained glass windows in it. The four pendentives of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The five altars in this apse to the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary, Franciscan saints on top of all the marble pillars and the dome of St. Joseph, patron of the universal church and patron of the family. There's a family at his feet depicted there and Vatican II with Pope John, now Saint, the 23rd in white wearing a gold stole around his shoulders at the opening of the council in 1962. To learn more about the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, visit nationalshrine.com. We'll have a link for that website on this show page at worldfootprints.com. destination spotlight, Tudor Place, built in 1816 in the Georgetown section of Washington, D.C., served as the home of George Washington's granddaughter, Martha Custis, and her husband, Thomas Peter. The estate holds family artifacts of George and Martha Washington and is situated in a five-and-a-half-acre garden. Let's go inside. The house was completed in 1816. It's a national historic It's an intact urban estate. It's five and a half acres of landscape gardens at the 1816 house. Because for the U.S., this is, it's, uh, we just had our bicentennial last year. And the fact that it's all here, it's been substantially unchanged. Modifications were made, but it was built by an early American architect, uh, William Gordon, who was a friend of George Washington's, designed our first U.S. Capitol building, and several other uh, estates that are still standing. He was, he was the architect of the early 19th century. So why would you come here to Tudor Place? One is you get off the mall. You've seen everybody would spend some time at the Smithsonian and in the center of the city. But Georgetown is always worth a trip. It is the oldest section of DC. It is our old city or old town. It was here before the District of Columbia existed. And it was only later became part of Washington, and Washington, D.C. 
D.C. was created. The history here in this building, so much was touched on here. Major American events, the Civil War, the War of 1812, political disagreements, changes in how people lived on the land. All of that is encompassed here in this site. There was a family here, one family, six generations. The founders were sort of the Kardashians or the Kate and Will of their days. They were a prominent American it couple. She was the granddaughter of Martha Washington. She was George Washington's step-granddaughter. And she married into one of the largest land-owning families in early Maryland. And this was part of Maryland. So in 1795, they got married. And in 1805, they bought land to build an estate sufficient to their status. The country of Namibia is replete with natural physical beauty and abundant wildlife. The world's fastest cat, the cheetah, roams the beautiful landscapes, but is faced with man-made and natural threats to its existence. For more than three decades, rescuing cheetahs and returning them to the wild has been the focus of Namibia's Cheetah Conservation Fund. During a trip to Namibia, we visited CCF for a closer look at the efforts to save this endangered cat. CCF's Eli Walker took us behind the scenes during feeding time as we learned of the challenges facing the cheetah in Namibia. So in the wild, cheetahs are hunting the smaller antelopes, so things like springbok, steenbok, diker, warthog, and the calves of the larger antelope, so young elan, young kudu, young oryx. When a cheetah makes a kill, they eat as much as they need as quickly as they can before a larger predator comes along and steals their food from them. It does happen quite often that things like lions, leopards, hyenas, even large groups of jackals and vultures will come in, chase the cheetah away, and steal its food from them. So before that happens, they do have to eat very quickly to ensure they get at least one good meal out of every kill that they make. In the wild, a cheetah is probably going to eat five to 10 kilograms in one sitting, um, but in the wild, they'll go two or three days in between each meal. Here at CCF, we feed these cheetahs six out of seven days of the week, and therefore we do feed a little bit less at once. So each of these pieces, on average, is one to two kilograms. Here at CCF, we are <coughs> feeding predominantly horse and donkey. Now we do feed game as well, but we can't rely entirely on game because if we were, we would deplete the wildlife in the area. And we of course want to avoid that. It takes about a donkey a day to feed all of our cheetahs. So what we do instead is purchase retired horses and donkeys from local farmers, and that's what we use to feed our cheetahs. It's a healthy alternative, and we're supporting the local economy at the same time. Each of these pieces, as you can see, kind of has a large bone inside of it. We do this for a couple of reasons. The first, as I said before, they do eat very quickly. And though they're safe here at CCF, no one's going to be able to steal their food from them. That instinct is very strong, and it does carry over to captivity. So just to make sure that they're taking enough time to chew and process their food, uh, we make sure that each piece has a large bone, so they have to work around the bone to get at the meat. Also, cheetahs, their skulls and their jaws aren't actually strong enough to crush and eat these larger bones, like a lion or a hyena might do. Uh, so when they're done with all of the meat, they'll just continue chewing on the bone for a while, which they really enjoy, and it's also really good for their teeth. kind of serves as a toothbrush, keeps them clean, healthy, and strong. You can kind of notice a little bit, there's kind of a whitish glaze on the meat. You guys see that? Kind of a whitish powder on the meat. It's kind of soaked in now with the blood. Um, but in the wild, cheetahs are feeding on the organs of the animal in addition to the meat. And uh, also as, as well, some of the smaller bones, like the ends of the rib bones. And these parts provide a lot of the minerals, uh, the nutrients and the other vitamins that they really need, uh, but the meat doesn't provide to them. Now it's really important that they get these parts, um, but because we do have so many cheetahs here at CCF, unfortunately we don't have enough of those parts to go around on a daily basis to each of the cats. 
So we do have to supplement their diet with that powder. It's called predator powder, and it contains the calcium, the other vitamins and minerals and such that the meat's not giving to them. As the cheetahs enjoy feeding time, the captive environment belies the harsh reality faced by the cheetahs as they try to survive in the wild. So as you can see, they're quite frantic about their food. Eating very quickly, he actually, actually knocked his piece out there. Anytime that we're just feeding a chunk of flesh, uh, like this organ, we do chop it up into bite-sized pieces, otherwise they'll just swallow the whole thing whole, and they won't be able to uh, digest it very well. So these three, they're all adult males. Now this guy over here by himself, that's Ron, uh, he is normally inside with these, these other three, uh, but during feeding time, he is a bit smaller than the others, and they do pick on him, beat him up, and steal his food. So just to make sure that they that he gets all of his food for the, for the, on a daily basis, we do feed him separated. Up here on the left, that's little C. In the middle is smart man, and on the end is blonde man. So these two on the end, they are brothers. Little C is unrelated to any of the other cheetahs we have here at CCF. And Ron, we've got two sisters, the two females along the back fence line there who will be feeding in just a little bit. So in the wild, it would be natural to find a group of adult male cheetahs together like this. Male cheetahs will, particularly brothers, so like these two on the end, for example, they'll form groups, what we call coalitions, and they remain together for life. So from the time that they leave their mother and any of their sisters, they will stick together. They'll hunt together, sleep together, hold the same home range, even occasionally mate with the same female. By doing this, they improve their chances of survival because they're out there to support one another. The cheetahs love to eat, and their emotions come out in anticipation of a meal. Oh, you got your organ dirty. Yeah, so as you can see, they are kind of quite meticulous, and he's got his main piece there um, on the dirt, so he'll pick it back up in just a minute and put it back in the bowls before he continues on. Probably. <laughs> Alright, so we're going to move down to the corner down here and feed uh, the next group, our four ambassadors. Uh, these guys, no. Uh, with these ones, as you see here, they have their favorite spots to eat from, but it's kind of first come, first serve, so they'll run in, grab the first piece they can get, but then they all pick it up and go to their favorite spot. You'll see in just a second. It's not very nice, guys. Come on. One of the challenges CCF faces is from human intervention in nature. In rescuing cheetahs from the wild and rearing cheetahs in captivity, some of the cats become reliant on humans for their care and survival. When this happens, the rescued cheetahs have to assume a different role. All right, so these four, we do refer to them as our ambassadors. There's two males and two females. They're all siblings from the same exact litter. Up here on the front left, that's Peter, one of the males. Front right is Danae, one of the females. Back right is Kaijay, the other male. And back left is Tiger Lily, the other female. Now these four, they were all orphaned at just about two weeks of age over in the Okakurara region, which is just on the other side of the Waterford. The farmer who shot their mother, he captured all four of them, had them for a short while until the Ministry of Environment found out about it. They confiscated the cubs from him, and we ended up with them to take care of at just about three weeks of age. Because they arrived at such a young age, we did have to bottle feed them and rear them, and because of that, they are extremely comfortable with people and with their handlers. Because we had to raise them this way, we did take the opportunity to train them as what we call ambassadors, which are basically education animals that we can use to teach farmers here in Namibia about the cheetah and about what CCF is doing to save the cheetah. You know, it's a really effective tool because I could stand up here and talk to you all day about an animal and you're going to get really bored. But if I can actually have one in front of you and show you what I'm talking about, it really makes much more of an impact on a person. 
Now we used to use these guys a lot more. We used to bring them up to the center every day to meet the daily visitors. However, the laws did change in Namibia a couple of years ago, and we're no longer allowed to do that. We still do use them, but it's in a much more limited capacity. So these guys, like I said, they arrived when they were just about three weeks of age, and now they're all about four years of age. Four and a half, actually, now. It's a standard litter. Uh, the average litter size for a cheetah is four to six, um, but only two to three survive. A lot of people, uh, uh, a lot of people will think that cheetahs' average litter size is two to three because that's all, that's how many cubs they normally see. It's not always that um, two or three do. Uh, a lot of times you'll have even more than that. But you'll have you know all six survive. Everyone is rare, but it does happen. But yeah, these guys were captured at a very very young age. So I'm gonna feed, we're gonna feed Ron, and he's gonna be fed in the enclosure just to the right of these boys here. We will continue our visit at the Cheetah Conservation Fund in Namibia in a moment. If you want more information on CCF, visit cheetah.org. We will also have a link for them on this show page at worldfootprints.com. <laughs> You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Just ahead, we will hear more about CCF's mission in Namibia and what it's like to be part of the team working to save cheetahs in Namibia. Then we'll explore the Herrick House Museum and the contributions of brewer Christian Herrick in Washington, D.C. And later, husband and wife explorers Philippe and Ashlyn Cousteau build on the Cousteau family legacy with their new travel channel show, Caribbean Pirate Treasure, and share how they navigate their professional work and their marital relationship. If you want to travel deeper and uncover more powerful stories about interesting people and places around the world, visit our website, worldfootprints.com. Cheetahs in a country like Namibia has challenges and a host of cultural and policy issues to balance. CCF's dedicated staffers are on the front lines of the efforts to educate and communicate with local communities the best ways to save the cheetahs while promoting sustainable communities. CCF relies on dedicated staffers like Eli Walker, who we introduced in the previous segment, and interns like Molly Mason, both from the States, who care passionately about cheetahs. First, let's learn what brought Eli to CCF's home base in Namibia. I started as an intern. Uh, I developed an interest in cheetahs as a young kid, and I found CCF online, and I've been following them ever since. Um, when I decided to go to school and study wildlife science, uh, wildlife biology and animal husbandry, um, I knew I wanted to intern here, so I applied, got it, came back three times as a student, um, and then I graduated and they gave me a full-time position. So, Where's home? 
No, I'm from Georgia. I'm from the States. As one of the cheetah's caretakers, Eli is not only responsible for feeding them, but also releasing them when they're ready. Uh, we do uh, release cats. Um, it's one of the things that I, I do here as well. I monitor our release cheetahs. Um, it's a very difficult process because, one, you have to identify an individual that's capable of being released. All of these cheetahs that you see here today, there is no chance for them to return to the wild, unfortunately. Um, but we do have some that are kept away from here, not that anyone sees except those of us who take care of them, because they're still very afraid of people. And we have to maintain that fear because that fear of humans is kind of number one for their survival in the wild. Uh, we are their biggest threats, so they need to be afraid of us. Otherwise, we'll just go to a farm right away, start killing his livestock, or start begging him for food, um, and that's when he's going to shoot him. So it'd be very unwise for us to release any cats like this back into the wild because they are so comfortable with people. Eli's passion for working with cheetahs led to multiple internships with CCF and a job after graduation from college. Molly Mason of Tallahassee, Florida, who we met on our visit to CCF in Namibia, shares her journey as a CCF intern. My name is Molly Mason. And you're volunteering here. I am volunteering at CCF. Mm -hmm. I've been here for almost four months now. Um, and I'm going to be here for five months. I leave at the beginning of May. I extended my stay twice, so <laughs> I've enjoyed my time here a lot, and I've learned a lot about the cheetahs and how to keep them healthy and what makes them have a rich and prosperous life in um, captive captive environment. Now, Molly, was this part of an educational program, uh, university credits for you? I graduated, so this was something I wanted to do just for myself, but it was educational. I had that in mind. I wanted experience before I went to grad school, so working and getting experience was really important for me to make my decision on which grad program I wanted to go into. Um, and I think I've narrowed it down to conservation biology or wildlife biology. And I've also been looking at different schools. Um, Minnesota has one of the top conservation biology programs, so I'm thinking about going there. Okay. Yeah. How has this experience been for you, first in Namibia and secondly um, on the campus of C CCF? Um, well, when I first landed, I saw a porcupine running down the runway. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is going to be great. <laughs> it was a good sign. Um, so Namibia has been amazing. Um, it's been uh, very opening and it's been a growing experience for me. When I got here, I was very nervous. I didn't know what to expect. And over the months being here and learning and getting more comfortable with people and the work, um, I've grown a lot as a person and I've learned about things about myself that I didn't exactly know mm -hmm. um, before I came to Namibia. Um, I did some traveling New Year's Eve. I went all the way through Namibia into Zambia and Zimbabwe and I went to Victoria Falls which is one of the seven wonders of the world and that was beautiful so I'm really glad I got to do a little traveling while I was here. So it hasn't been all work for it you? It hasn't been all work. Um, <laughs> But a lot of my work is really fun, mm -hmm. so uh, I don't consider too much of my work really work because <laughs> I enjoy it so much. Um, now, what exactly do you do here? I do a number of things. So you have different activities that you can do throughout the day. 
Um, you can do dog husbandry, which is working with the Anatola Shepherds, and they're a breed from Turkey. And um, they have been one of the most beneficial programs here at CCF, benefiting the, ch the rewilded cheetahs. So you place an Anatola Shepherd with a herd of goats or sheep, and they will protect those goats and sheep. Mm -hmm. And we've seen an 85% reduction in livestock mortality. And so they really help keep the livestock safe. So it's almost like insurance. So when a livestock is killed, usually they blame cheetahs. Um, or another predator and they go they put poison or they kill them mm -hmm. and so when their livestock is safe they have no need to kill predators in the area so what has been the most enriching experience for you here during your time here I, the CCF Namibia yeah um, I think the most enriching part is working with an endangered species every single day and seeing all the different aspects that CCS has to has to offer um, in conjunction with saving the species through genetics through dog husbandry placing a dog with a herd mm. um, farmer outreach education rewilding program where they get wild cheetahs that have spent at least 18 to 22 months with their mother mm -hmm. and then they're very wild they know how to hunt and they are actually um, they're not habituated like these cats are so they are in our surrounding farms where they don't get to see people very often um, and they are very wild and so it's almost like they retrain them a little bit they put them in a soft release camp which is called Bellabino and that's where there's plenty of water and there's plenty of game and there's not a lot of predators for competition and so they like regain their sense of hunting and then when they do really well there hmm. we can re-release them into the wild okay and so I think animal hus or, um, cheetah husbandry has been one of my favorites, mm -hmm. where you actually go out and you see the wild cheetahs on a daily basis, and you feed them, and you actually run them, so they have uh, the same vehicle every day goes out to the more wild cheetahs, and we have meat treats in the back of this pickup truck, and you run them. So you like rev up the engine and make it all loud and get them really excited and wave a piece of meat in the air, and then you... Um, drive the truck really fast and the cheetahs run right beside it and that's a form of enrichment okay so I, you've uh, experienced um, or you extended your your time here you said a couple of times yes, already um, what are you going to do when you go back home to Florida so I've actually been looking at things I um, can do back home today on the Texas A&M fisheries and job board and I think I'm going to try to work with tagging of sea turtles mm -hmm. and um and then there was another one the tall timbers research station which is in my hometown tallahassee florida and they're working with gopher tortoise monitoring and surveying okay so you'll you'll continue in the conservation I world i really, really hope so so i'm going to about to apply to a bunch of different um organizations and job opportunities and see what happens and then I'm going to get a little bit more experience and then I'm going to go to grad school. For more about CCF's work, visit cheetah.org. We will have resources on this show page at worldfootprints.com to help you learn more about CCF and Namibia. In this destination spotlight, the popular DuPont Circle neighborhood in northwest Washington, D.C. was home to Christian Hurich, a German immigrant who built the city's most successful brewery. The home bearing his name, Hurich House, 
built from 1892 to 1894, stands as a museum and a reminder of DuPont Circle's early 20th century wealth and fashion. Let's learn about the man behind the house. Cousteau Jr. came to undersea exploration and conservation thanks to a legacy left by his famous grandfather, Jacques, and his father. Now Philippe and his wife Ashlyn, who made her mark as an on-air entertainment reporter for E! News, combine their personal and professional passions in their new travel channel show, Caribbean Pirate Treasure. They're crisscrossing the Caribbean to share stories of pirates and lost treasures of yesteryear. Congratulations, you two, on your new Travel Channel show, Caribbean Pirate Treasure. What is the premise for your show? Well, honestly, there couldn't be a more honest title if, I, if we try to think of one. So Philippe and I really, we just go around the Caribbean diving into pirate mysteries, lore of lost treasure, and really just look into the amazing history of the Caribbean. Because when you think that it was really the, the gateway between the old world and the new world, and really any ship going to and from passed through the Caribbean, it was an amazing gateway. And just the stories that are there, the wrecks that are there, the antiquities that are still underneath the sea, that's what we're interested in, and that's what we go try to find. 
The Cousteau name is synonymous with sea exploration. How does the show draw on the Cousteau legacy? Well, you know, you're right that my, my grandfather, Jacques Cousteau, my father, Philippe Cousteau, were, were, were famous for all the work they did in, in exploring the world, particularly nature and conservation. What a lot of people don't remember is that my grandfather started out in the Mediterranean in the early days of, of scuba diving, That he, uh, when he co-invented scuba diving. Their passion took them exploring underwater wrecks and archaeological, underwater archaeology, looking at old Greek and Roman and Phoenician wrecks and, and uh, really investigating those histories and mysteries. So it was a big passion of his to look back in time and understand the, the mysteries of the ocean and, and the secrets that it holds in, in terms of human history and, and treasures, if you will. And he also actually went for the first season of the Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau in 1968. They, one of the places they went to was the Silver Bank in search of the Concepcion, which was one of the most famous treasure ships in history. And the Silver Bank is an area just 80 miles north of the Dominican Republic. And actually, this weekend's one of this weekend's episodes that premieres on Sunday night, we go back searching for the wreck that they found. They did not find the Concepcion, but they found another wreck. And 50 years later, we go back to that same place in what is my favorite episode of the series to uh, to look for that wreck and to, and to go back into his footsteps. So, you know, he loved mysteries and the high adventure of investigating the stories of the past. So it, it's very much inspired by that. Now, you know, as a fellow scuba diver, I love that you'll be taking viewers on explorations of our oceans. And you mentioned one of the places that this coming uh, episode will, will feature. What are some of the other areas that we'll get to go diving with? With you. I, I really think that that's one of the fun, more fun or funnest part of the show is that we do get to take people underwater. We actually did the the champagne dive right off of Dominica, the Commonwealth of Dominica. Dominica was one of Felipe and I's favorite islands to visit. Yeah. It's just so beautiful. Where else did we go? We went to the Belize, Blue Hole. The Blue Hole in Belize was spectacular. Another place that my grandfather visited and was the first to dive in also around 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so getting to go back there and it's a protected area. So the amount of life and fish and the healthy coral all surrounding the Blue Hole is just takes your breath away. Mm-hmm. We also went to Florida. We went to St. Croix. We went to St. Thomas. We went, I mean, we, if it's in the Caribbean, we pretty much hit it up. Yeah, we got to dive on the, uh, on Rotan. the Rotan. We got to go, as Ashton said, we went to a Tortola and the British Virgin Islands as well. And we got to go to the original Treasure Island, uh, oh. called Norman Island, that was the inspiration for the book Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. That was pretty amazing. And I would say that is actually that specific dive off of Tortola because there was a storm coming. We were on the windward side of the island at a place that was famous for cracking ships wide open. And it was the hardest scuba diving I think we've both done. We just had currents and waves crashing us into these razor sharp corals. When you're looking for treasure and looking for history, Mm -hmm. we just kind of kept going. We just really hope our moms don't get mad at us when they watch watch that episode. (laughs) Well, I know you both are adventurers, and so, you know, it's just just part of your DNA, and they're probably used to it. Um, That's true. And, you know, and by the way, Ian and I actually snorkeled uh, Champagne Reef, and I love that the bubbles just tickle. I just, I love that, and next time I'd like to dive. Um, But I'm glad that you, you cover that in one of your shows. Philippe, you probably, because of your legacy, uh, you came into this world with mask and fins on. But Ashlyn, I know that you've only been diving for a few years. What was your first dive and how, if at all, was it transformational for you? You know, I was a water baby since I was tiny. Um, I learned to swim before I could walk. Uh, My parents just said that 
if they ever lost me on a rainy day, they'd find me out playing in a puddle. I just, <laughs> I just loved that I became a lifeguard as soon as I could when I was 15 years old. Um, and I always wanted to scuba dive, but my parents really weren't into it, and my sister didn't have any interest, so I never had a buddy to go with. So when I first when I first met Philippe, I thought, hmm, my dad can go scuba diving with this guy. <laughs> um, so the very first time we took uh, a big trip together, um, I had taken my classes online during work hours, which was really fun, actually. And um, I we went to Bonaire. Mm. Um, what a, what a sweet, fun, great island to go to for my first experience. And Philippe had been going there for 15 years. So we went to, you know, the hotel that he always stayed at with the, with the dive shop that everybody knew and the bartender and the waiters. It was just it was a great experience. And um, I loved it. I still don't necessarily love night dives, to be totally honest. Um, you know, you either love or the hate the night dive. Mm-hmm. They'll make me a little, a little anxious, but everything else, um, I just dive straight in. And I just think that being able to see and discover an entirely new world, especially as an adult, is incredible. And so many people don't ever have that opportunity. But what they don't realize is that other world is just you know, a couple miles away or, or a flight away right in our ocean. Right. And I just hope that more people will put on masks and, and maybe maybe not totally scuba dive, but at least put a mask on and look underneath the waves to see that world that exists. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We're speaking to Ashlyn and Philippe Cousteau, host of Travel Channel's Caribbean Pirate Treasure. Without giving away too much, is there a favorite story or stories or treasures that you uncovered uh, while doing the show? Well, one of, the, uh, one of my favorite stories was from St. Thomas because um, in uh, Charlotte Amelie, the main town in St. Thomas that's been there for hundreds and hundreds of years, um, it's been a harbor for hundreds and hundreds of years. And uh, the story that we were investigating was the story of Jean Hamlin, one of the most successful pirates that you've never heard of. And um, he looted hundreds of millions of dollars worth of of treasure all the way from the the Indian Ocean all the way to the Caribbean and down to Brazil. For 16 years. 16 years. He was incredibly successful at what he did. And one of the things that that we were looking for was a a ship that was his called the Trompeuse, which was sunk by the English authorities in Charlotte and Amelie Harbor or thereabouts in and around. What was really amazing is that now cruise ships come in and out of Charlotte and Amelie Harbor constantly. It's a big cruise destination. And so the goal is always to get in the water to go looking around after the cruise ships pass because those huge propellers kick up all the sand and will sometimes uncover an entire wreck. And then the cruise ship comes back the next day and covers it back all uh, up again. So that was really pretty amazing to, uh, to be in the, you know, the shadow of these cruise ships coming through. And uh, we got a permit, of course, and we did it all, all, uh, all with permission. But, you know, that you'd, you'd be there one day and you go back the next and it would, the whole thing would look completely different because of these cruise ships. You've got pirates, you've got treasure, you've got great locales there in the Caribbean. What are you hoping that viewers will take away from the show? You know, I think for, for Philippe and I, um, we really hope that, that people will, A, have fun watching it, that they'll learn something. And, and most importantly, we really hope that people are inspired to get outside, to go explore, to maybe take a trip, you know, get that passport and take a trip. But most importantly, we also make sure that in every show, when we, you know, we do see things like um, plastic pollution because it is 
everywhere, sadly. Um, and we addressed that in the show. You know, one, we were in Roatan. The only fish I really saw was lionfish. And we talk about that. So I think for us, not only do we want people to learn about the history of the Caribbean, learn about the history of the U.S. and the, and the New World, but also, you know, do kind of key in to those nuggets of conservation that we have throughout the show and just get inspired to get outside and explore. Mm-hmm. Well, and as Ashley said, just have fun. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a great show. It's, it's, uh, it's fun to watch. We go on these great adventures and people can share in that with us. And it's a half hour and we are back to back on Sunday night. So it's, so it's just an hour of adventure. Many people are surprised that Ian and I enjoy working together on World Footprints despite the long hours or international date lines we cross. And so how has it been for you two to work together, and what have you learned about each other? You know, when, when Philippe and I first met, you, well, you were more or less doing the same thing that you've always been doing, which is conservation, and, and I was a correspondent for E! News at the time. You know, when I met Philippe, and I, I just realized how amazing he is, and the work that he is doing is, you know, I thought, how can we use the power of entertainment to really, you know, share this? Um, and share this to people into the world. So we had been trying to come up with an idea to work together pretty much since the day we met. Um, I think that mo- the thing that I've learned is that I really like the guy. Because, <laughs> 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 you know, when you travel, especially when, you know, we were four months on the road at different location every three days, packing up gear, you know, sweaty, hot, one hotel didn't have hot water. The next one didn't have cold water. Um, you know, long hours. It's it's tough and it's trying. And the fact that when we came home, I actually just wanted to spend time with him, even though we were together for four months. We were, I wanted to come home and just like lock the doors, hang out with the dog, turn on the air conditioning, and do nothing but hang out with my husband for about <laughs> a solid week. So for me, I think I learned just how strong our relationship is to to actually make it stronger even after kind of a hectic four months together. Yeah, I agree. You know, it, it teaches you that patience is really, really important and giving the, the other person the benefit of the doubt and expecting and, um, you know, uh, uh, assuming the best um, in, in whatever happens in any situation and being calm and patient. I mean, all those things that, that, um, that I think are, are, tend to be in our nature and why we mesh so well. Um, before these kinds of experiences, but when you're in the field, it, it just reinforces the importance of those kinds of, uh, I think, virtues uh, in, in any relationship. For more on the Cousteaus and their show, visit the Shows tab at TravelChannel.com and look for Caribbean Pirate Treasure. We'll have a link for them on this show page at WorldFootprints.com. the most pleasant surprises I had at least experienced with the segments on this show are the treasures that we uncovered in our own backyard, like the Basilica, which we have never been to, and certainly the historic houses and just feeling that there is a sense of Europe right in the middle of Washington, D.C. 
Well, the Basilica was certainly a surprise. This massive blue dome and this huge tower, and it, it stands about two miles north of the Capitol, and a lot of people see it but really have no idea what it holds inside, and it is a remarkable treasure trove of architecture, of art, and it's a relatively new building. It's of the last century, unlike many of the iconic buildings in Washington, and it really surprises, and it's breathtaking, and like so many cathedrals, it's a work in progress, and they are planning some extraordinary uh, mosaics to come uh, to complete some of the domes that are over the main upper church. And it's a remarkable place that's somewhat off the beaten path uh, near Catholic University in Northeast Washington that many travelers to Washington perhaps see but don't think about going to. And it's certainly one of those places that's worth visiting. And then, of course, you know, the houses, the, the Tudor and the Hurick House and just the gardens. You know, the, the, the one house had had a French garden and a Japanese garden and an English garden. Um, those were just beautiful examples of serenity in, in the midst of this, this chaotic city we live in called Washington, D.C. And one of the other things I really, really enjoyed about this show was our conversation with Philippe and Ashlyn. And um, you could hear the passion in their voices about what they're doing. And Ashlyn is more of a uh, more recent scuba diver. But I could tell as a scuba diver myself how much diving has really opened up and broadened her view of the, the world, underworld. And, uh, and I love the work that they're doing and the history that they're bringing to life. And I certainly love, dear, very much so the work that the uh, Cheetah Conservation Fund is is doing uh, in trying to preserve cheetahs. We've worked a lot with CCF for years. Uh, we have met some of their ambassadors and photographed with some of their ambassadors. And although they're criticized because of the, the uh, captivity, you know, they have some of their animals in captivity. Part of that's out of necessity, which I've come to appreciate. The other part is that uh, there are many, many cheetahs who they have on a, on a private reserve. And so they're still protecting them. They're not in captivity. They still exercise their instincts, wild instincts, and have the ability to hunt and live a peaceful life without worry of being shot or captured. CCF is doing remarkable work in a very tough environment. There's an education process that they're engaged in. There's a, there's a process of building relationships with the communities to, to help them better understand how they can better live with the cheetahs in, in their midst. And while it's been tough for CCF and Dr. Lori Marker has done outstanding work there, it has been controversial because they are from somewhere else and they're in Namibia. Um, a country that's that is not their home uh, for many of them, and and so there's just a lot that they have to balance. But their hearts are in the right place. The animals are well taken care of, and they are doing uh, something positive there to make a difference to preserve the life of the cheetah in Namibia. Indeed. 
And how cool was it to interview Jacques Cousteau's grandson? Indeed, very much so. He's uh, he's he's a special man, and he and Ashlyn are are a special couple. And two to admire. (laughs) And so I think it's befitting that we close today with words from Wendell Berry in his book, A Place on Earth. Nobody can discover the world for somebody else. Only when we discover it for ourselves does it become common ground and a common bond and we cease to be alone. Thank you so much for inviting us into your home to share the joys of our world. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to sharing our next adventure with you on World Footprints. World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award-winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes, and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com, you'll find an archive of past broadcasts, travel news, reviews, and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn, and live it at worldfootprints.com.